Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Adoramus Bulletin. In this episode, we speak with Joshua Ravel, who recently wrote an article for Adoramus titled, Seeing the Lord, Biblical Orientations for Eucharistic Renewal. Joshua is an assistant professor of dogmatic and spiritual theology at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Denver, Colorado, and holds a PhD from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. So without further ado, another Adoramus interview. Joshua, thank you so much uh, for taking time with us today. Uh, it's great to have you here. Yeah, Jesse, thank you. It's a pleasure uh, to speak with you, to meet you for the first time, and to talk about our Lord and the mysteries of his life and the church's life. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, my favorite question about uh, when somebody writes a, a great article like this for Adoramus is, where did this come from? You know, where... Where, what were you thinking about and why was this kind of important for you to say, hey, this this is something I have to say about this? Yeah, so it's actually a long and winding road. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a systematic theologian, so I spend most of my time thinking about the 13th century and St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, so biblical theology, I have a little bit of background, but not, not a ton. Liturgical theology, just a very little bit. So it was as much a surprise to me to be uh, publishing in, uh, you know, liturgical uh, editorial um, journal. So, uh, so it's a long story. I uh, began several years ago as working on my doctoral dissertation and as with on St. Thomas Aquinas. And I noticed in his treatment of the gift of understanding, uh, the way he describes it is by analogy to our natural faculty of understanding. Uh, so in Latin intellectus, and that's uh, connected to being able to read within intus legere. So, so he uses an analogy from, from the human power of understanding, uh, and our human power of understanding enables us to do things like understand the meaning of a text or to perceive the substantial reality that's hidden under, uh, the accidents of a thing. And it was very striking to me that he described the gift of understanding as essentially enabling us to understand the scriptures and perceive the Lord's presence in the Eucharist. And I said, oh, this is great. St. Thomas is giving us a vision of the Holy Spirit as a kind of mystagogue, the one who interiorly is teaching us how to move through the scriptures to see the Lord fulfilling uh, the typology uh, and then to see him ultimately present uh, in the Eucharist. Uh, but it wasn't really relevant to my dissertation. So it just kind of was on the back burner. And then this year, uh, the... Uh, Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal uh, at Ave Maria University, they always have an annual conference, and they were co-hosting with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And so it was this interesting convergence of uh, Thomist scholars who were really interested in St. Thomas, and then scholars who were really interested in biblical theology. It was also the year for Eucharistic revival, one of the years for Eucharistic revival, so that was on everyone's mind. Um, Scott Hahn, who you know heads up the St. Paul Center, the Emmaus Road story is his favorite scripture. It's at the heart of how he uh, really unveils the Lord's progressive um, revelation of himself and of his holiness. And so I thought, how could I kind of tie this all together and bring something, you know, hopefully contribute to the to the, to the conference? And, and uh, you know, it all seemed to converge on the Emmaus Road story. And again, I mentioned that I'm not primarily a biblical scholar. So there's some benefits and drawbacks of going into a field that's similar, but not exactly the same as yours. And, you know, the benefit is sometimes you go into things with fresh eyes as you're not kind of say pre-programmed maybe by the tradition. I'm not talking about the church's tradition, but just kind of scholarly tradition to read something in a particular way. So 
so I was going into this kind of work of exegesis, not having been primarily trained in biblical theology, but I knew enough from the church's teaching to know that, uh, to know where to look to try and understand the scriptures, which is uh, basically if their, if their name starts with an S meaning saint. So, so I could begin uh, by looking at what the patristic theologians had to say about the story. And of course there's great research resources now available where you can just type in the particular scripture verse and see what every church father has said about that. So I just went through every verse of the Emmaus Road story. What does every church father have to say about that verse? Um, did the, you know, generally the same thing with uh, the medieval theologians. And then, you know, to do due diligence, I also uh, looked at some modern commentaries to see what, um, you know, historical critical method has brought out that we can give us greater insight into, uh, you know, what some other scholars may not have picked up. I just tried to tie it all together to get as much of a sense of how the church reads this this story. And uh, and so then I had a, a kind of a very unusual paper to deliver at an academic conference. It felt more like I was preaching than it would have been a, than an academic paper. But um, Father Thomas Wynandy, uh, you know, recommended your uh, Adoramus Bulletin and because uh, I don't know the lay of the land really with, with liturgical scholarship. So he said, yeah, send it to Adoramus. And then and then Chris was really uh, gracious in, in hosting this this piece. And yeah, it's been a great blessing the whole way through, but a very winding road to end up at this piece. And an Emmaus road, to be sure, I would say. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, the road to Emmaus is my personal favorite uh, story as well. It's just, I don't know, it's, just, it's filled with everything. And as you were kind of talking about these intersections between different you know, theological disciplines, it kind of occurred to me just in this moment that this story is kind of the intersection of almost all of the theological disciplines, you know, you and, you know, the Christian life, you know, conversion, reversion, uh, divinization, you know, revelation, the mass, you know, all of this stuff is packed inside this story. So, um, so it's no surprise that when you look at this as being, you know, probably the first Eucharistic revival ever in church history. Uh, walk me through, uh, you kind of do this in the article here, but what is what are these you know, core principles that you looked at as kind of identifying this story as a parallel to Eucharistic revival? Yeah, so it's funny, as I've talked to people, I've been surprised to find uh, how many people this is actually their favorite story. Uh, and especially you find, you know, the disciples are downcast. Uh, they're they're disturbed, they're distressed, they're upset, they're discouraged, and the Lord is with them, and he encourages them and gives them hope. And I think that's just something that, you know, we can all relate to at different times and, you know, especially certain times in our lives, that the, the Lord remains with us, uh, even when we maybe not may not see it, um, but he's with us and he does really actively give us encouragement. The other thing that you mentioned was that this story is a kind of convergence of theological disciplines, which is an interesting point, right? Because when you're doing theology, hopefully, it's not just a matter of trying to amass a certain amount of information, but it is really trying to come to a living knowledge of a person who's alive and who you can know and whose heart you can know. And that this culminates, again, not just in knowledge, but in union, um, a, a kind of a very full union that we can experience, I mean, under the veil of the sacrament and still under the veil of faith, but nonetheless, a real, a very real union in Eucharistic communion. Um, and of course, this is what 
sets our lives on fire and gives us a real sense of meaning to life and and hope and for a future and you know for that day when ultimately we reach what we're aiming for when we do theology and when we go to mass and receive communion which is to be able to see the glory of the lord and his love for us and and to fully experience that in the beatific vision so yeah it's a great story for really orienting the christian life as a whole theological study all of that that it's sacramental it's divinizing like you said so yeah, that's a great observation. Uh, the core, the core principles. It seems to me that in the story there are two kind of major moments, and and we're used to seeing this through uh, how the story is explained as kind of a prototypical mass, where you have a kind of liturgy of the word, where the Lord opens the scriptures, and then you have the Lord at table when He breaks the bread, and then. Uh, these two major moments, I mean, call them moments, but they're spread out through, you know, most of Easter Sunday or, or a good part of Easter Sunday. You know, it's a quite a, a long walk and quite a long Bible study. And uh, and then you have the Eucharist table. So so it's a long period of time. But these two kind of overarching moments um, have very interesting effects on the people who are present on the, the two disciples. When when the Lord opens the scriptures which is really uh, explaining to them how all the scriptures are fulfilled in himself, especially in his Paschal mystery, in his death and his resurrection. Then their hearts burn within them. And our hearts are really, uh, you know, it's a very Semitic way of speaking about the very core of our being. And that's really what the Lord touches when he's opening the scriptures and explaining how the scriptures and really everything point to him. Uh, so it really sets sets our hearts on fire. And then the second thing that happens is when they're, when they receive the Eucharist, uh, their eyes are opened. And this is the effect. And it's very fascinating to me that, uh, you know, I, I often hear people speak about the Emmaus Road story and they don't really dive into it too much. They just kind of use it as like a keyword, like, the, you know, oh, he opened their eyes. Oh, their hearts were burning. Um, but don't, don't, people don't usually seem to dive much into it. And, and um, Pope Benedict in Verbum Domini, he outlines the process of Lexio Divina really well. And in the Lexio phase, he said it's really important to pay attention to what the scriptures are actually saying so that we're able to really encounter the Lord in his word and not just be imposing our own thoughts on scripture and coming away with nothing more than we came in with. So we want to actually be able to draw out the riches of the word. That means really paying attention to what's happening in the story. And I think we would think ordinarily, if the Lord opened the scriptures, then we would expect, well, their eyes or their minds would be opened. And then when we receive the Eucharist, their hearts would be burning. But it's actually the opposite effect, which is really fascinating. So the first thing that has to happen is their hearts have to start burning. There has to be um, a transformation. And this happens through the un unlocking of the scriptures, unveiling of the Lord in the scriptures. This was our mass reading uh, just for this morning, uh, that there's a veil on the scriptures, but those who turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to really see the Lord being proclaimed and who he is and, and his heart in the scriptures. And this has to happen first. And there's a principle in, I mean, it's even in Greek philosophy, the idea that uh, our dispositions, our, our hearts have to be corrected before we can really perceive the truth. And of course, this is the kind of universal truth. Jesus alludes to it um, and brings its full fulfillment when he says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So there is, there's a purification of the heart that needs to happen so that we're turned towards the Lord. And then this is what enables us to really see him more. And then of course, with the, with the Eucharist, 
when the disciples receive the Eucharist, their eyes are opened, and then they they fully realize that the Lord is alive and that he's present in the Eucharist. And of course, one of the most striking moments in the scene is that Jesus disappears. Uh, that as soon as they receive the Eucharist and their eyes are opened, he vanishes. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you're writing, you're not sure whether you should use a particular example. Maybe it's not as reverent as it should be, but the only thing that I could come up to describe this was I use I use in the article like Jesus was playing a game of peekaboo. Um, so he was disappearing in one form, but precisely so that the disciples would recognize that he's really present in the Eucharist. Right. So it's the same Lord. It's not a different Lord. It's the same person. Um, and he's just as much present in the Eucharist as he was visibly present before them. In a certain sense, uh, the communion with him is even more uh, complete because then it's communing with the Lord, not just at a table, but in our hearts. So when the Lord says, you know, um, I behold, I stand at the door and knock, he will eat with me and I with him. Uh, this abiding with the Lord is something that happens ultimately in the soul through the sacrament. So it's the, um, it's ordered towards this deep abiding union with the Lord. What what a generous uh, thing from Christ to, to actually disappear, to be able to reveal that and to show that because you know, in in the upper room or in the in the Last Supper, rather, uh, he didn't disappear. You know, during the you know breaking of the bread there, and that might have been confusing because they say, "Oh, okay, you know what's going on." But but uh, a very generous thing from our Lord to be able to reveal that in that story to Emmaus, to be able to in our you know finite minds be able to process that in in a in a better way. You know what a, what an amazing thing. So you know. Again, you you say the story is really popular. People like to kind of pull all those buzz phrases out of there, and and, and that's good and true. But um, I think probably another thing that people forget about this story, and not unlike the disciples themselves, is something happens, and there needs to be a result. So you don't just go see Christ on the cross and then see this you know mystical thing and then just go on your merry way and say you know whatever. We cannot ourselves become those disciples on Emmaus hearing the story and then just walk away saying, hey, you know, <laughs> that was a really great story. I got all the stuff I got to do. We, too, need to be changed. Our our hearts need to be burning so that we can be, you know, fully receptive of that. In, in, in all of this processing, you've had a lot of time, you know, writing and thinking about this. How can we do that in the best way? How can we have in like a, a fullness of revival? So that we don't have those hardened hearts, uh, you know, leaving Jerusalem. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Jesse. So one of the things that, you know, as we talk about revival, um, you know, we often hear the bishops are calling for revival. And, and that's true. And that's good. But sometimes we can forget that what we see in this story is that the Lord is the one who brings revival fundamentally. And so we're putting ourselves at, at his disposal and at his feet to listen to his teaching and and. Uh, to the math to receive him in the Eucharist. Uh, you know, I meant, I alluded to already uh, Pope Benedict's document, Verbum Domini, and his discussion of Lexio Divina. And I've been thinking lately about uh, how often we hear the scriptures, and sometimes it can just become, feel mundane. And, uh, and almost like there's, a, you know, you just kind of zone out because it's like, I've heard this, you know, 10,000 times. And, uh, you know, if the Lord wants to speak to me, he'll speak, but nothing's happening right now. So you just kind of move on. And what I really like about the way that Pope Benedict explains the method of going through Lexio Divina and Verbum Domini is that it illustrates how 
uh, without putting too much you know, weight on ourselves, that we have a role to play, especially when we're praying with scripture, that we really need to either envision ourselves in the scene or really try and put what the Lord is teaching in our own words to try and really think about what is he saying here. And a lot of times the scriptures aren't opened to us if we're not doing the work to try to understand them. If we just expect them magically to have some type of effect um, without putting in our work. Now, of course, the Lord by his power can and often does do that. Just speak to us very clearly, you know, clear as a bell right through some scripture passage without any work on our part. But I think it's a beautiful thing to do for the Lord is to say, I'm going to put as much of myself into this process of studying and, and trying to understand your word as I can. And then I think the Lord often responds really generously with opening the scriptures to us. And of course, you know, there's many beautiful ways to, to grow in, in understanding the depths of the scriptures through, um, you know, good, good Catholic commentaries and, you know, reading some works of the fathers and all of that, who have been especially blessed by the Lord with having this kind of insight that, that we can really draw from. Um, so, so, I mean, that's in terms of, of, I say the scriptures, but one great way to bring this together is to do something like that, uh, or to read scripture in general in Eucharistic adoration, um, because there the Lord himself is doing what he did uh, on the road to Emmaus. He's there and he's also helping us to unlock the scriptures. And he explains uh, the scriptures to us in a, in a beautiful and powerful way when we're in his presence uh, in adoration. Uh, this translates, I mean, this is now something for uh, priests, obviously. Um, if you translate the Emmaus Road story as a kind of pattern for how we celebrate the Eucharist, there's the reading of the scriptures, the Lord begins with the Old Testament scriptures, but then he shows how they're fulfilled in him. And this is kind of like the role of the homily. And uh, in in many cases, well, not many cases, but in a few cases, not in Denver where I work, but in, in other places, I've spoken to some seminarians, and sometimes I find a kind of disposition among seminarians to think, well, what really matters is that, that we distribute the Eucharist, and my preaching doesn't really matter that much. It's really, that's what, not really what people need. And I really combat that strongly because you can see in the Emmaus Road story that there is a, a method that the Lord uses. He knows how we're constituted. He knows what's necessary um, in order to really help us come closer to him. And the example that he gives is what is really traditional in the Catholic Church of the method of mystagogy is that we begin with what the Lord has done in the Old Testament, which uh, typifies what he's going to fulfill in the New Testament. And so we have to make this movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That is what makes our hearts burn. And then the movement from the New Testament, the scriptures, to the sacramental reality. Um, I, uh, I can't remember which pope it is, who's Pope Leo, perhaps, um, who said that all of the mysteries of Christ, all the mysteries of Christ's life have passed over into his mysteries or the sacraments. And so we need to see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament, and then how that becomes. Um, really active and present in the liturgical celebration, but it doesn't just end there. It orients us towards eternal glory uh, where these sacraments are unveiled. The Lord's presence is unveiled. So there is this historical, uh, say, progression that's totally reenacted in the liturgy. Um, and the homily is a key place in showing how the scriptures are fulfilled in Christ who we're about to receive and who we hope to see in glory. You know, it's it's so funny because you have the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and even in the culmination of the Liturgy of the Word is prayers of the Universal Church after the homily is the conclusion of the Liturgy of the Word, where where we, 
as the body of corporate body of Christ get to then process all of that, all of the scripture and then that revelation, all of that, and then get to verbalize that as these, as these prayers and, and then leading, you know, including those prayers, but then also leading quite literally just to the offering of the sacrifice as well. So I, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's just absolutely amazing. Joshua, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing a little bit more about this this article on, on Adoramus. And if you want to read it, you can go to adoramus.org. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. What a wonderful article. Thanks, Jesse. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I hope to see you again soon. All right. God bless.